Good morning. Uh, The scripture reading today is from Genesis 2, verses 20 to 25, and I just checked. I think it's on page 2 in your brown pew Bibles. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, this is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Carrie. Keep those Bibles open if you have them to Genesis 2 and 1. We're going to look at Genesis 1 also. Um, Let's pause and pray. Lord, we invite you to bring us clarity to um, help us to look at your design for sexuality, um, help us to, to see what you want us to see, and most importantly, to understand your word so that we can, um, so that we can embrace it for our individual lives. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I heard something really interesting from a man who, who works with college students. He talks to them about Jesus, answers their questions, and he said it used to be 10 or 20 years ago that students would ask, is it true? You know, did the resurrection really happen? How can we be sure? Is the Bible really the word of God? How do you know? Is there really a God? Questions about the objective reality of the Christian faith. But he said more recently, in the last five or ten years, the questions have changed. And now, students are not asking, is it true, but is it good? Is it good? Because they have seen Christianity weaponized against people. They have seen caricatures of Christianity as a set of rules, uh, killing all the joy in life. They've heard all of the stories we have about the abuse, sexual abuse scandals in the church, Catholic and Protestant. So they're asking not, is it true? That comes later, but is it good? Can I trust these people and this message? And I can think of no bigger area people are asking that question than in the realm of Christian sexual ethics. They're asking, is it, can it really be, is it really, does God really care who I sleep with? Um, Why does God have so many rules about sex? Um, How can I be sure that following Jesus won't make me a judgmental hypocrite, right? Is it good? And these are valid questions. If we as a church and as individuals are going to hold to the historic Christian sexual ethic in all its fullness, which is um, that that sex is good and right within the covenant of of marriage 
between a man and a woman, do we really believe that is good news for everyone? Do we? Or do we feel like we have to apologize for it or sort of explain it and sort of, um, you know, be afraid of sharing that with people? Well, today I want to highlight three reasons why it is good and why we can unapologetically live in and promote and hold to the Christian, historic Christian sexual ethic. I want to highlight three reasons why embracing God's wisdom for our sexuality is good news. And we can't do that without looking at this foundational passage in Genesis 2, which provides the the source material for much of the rest of what the Bible says about sex and marriage. Um, The Bible has a lot to say about about sex, but a lot of those threads connect back to Genesis chapter 2. So we're not going to stay in this passage the whole time, but we'll keep coming back to it. And I want to give one disclaimer. This is the big picture view. It's not about specific situations, which can be very complex. It's about the big picture, a 30,000 foot view of what is God's design for sex. So if you have questions about specific applications or issues, please don't be afraid to ask those. Talk to me, and we'll work through those together. So three reasons why we should embrace God's wisdom for our sexuality. Reason one, because God's design for our sexuality is good. It's very good. The first two chapters of Genesis reveal something very important about our bodies. Genesis 1 gives us the big picture of the creation of the world and of man and woman, right? Um, <clears throat> and we learn that humans, male and female, are created in the image of God. Genesis 1.27. And then we're told on the seventh day God rested and God saw all that he had made, including male and female bodies, and how those bodies fit together, how the various organs are placed, all of that is very good, according to the Bible. And Adam seemed to agree with that. In uh, Genesis 1.23, when he bursts into rapturous song, when he sees the woman coming toward him. Like the perfect, this is the perfect partner for me. Bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. So as one of God's good creations, sex has a good purpose. The first is procreation. No surprise there, right? God told Adam and Eve to increase in number and fill the earth. Genesis 1.28. You've heard that before. So that his image and his rule would spread out through his creation and fill the world with his glory, which is reflected in human beings. And how are human beings brought into the world? Through sex. It's one of the beautiful purposes of sexuality. Now, sometimes this aspect has been overemphasized by the church as if this is the only godly purpose like, don't just ignore the fact that it's pleasurable and that it creates intimacy between 
a spouse, spouses, it's just for procreation. And that's short-sighted. But it's certainly part of it. But, okay, if populating the earth were the only, um, the only purpose for sexuality, then surely God would have given Adam ten wives or maybe even a hundred wives, right? That would be much more efficient. <laughs> but that would cut against the second important purpose for sexuality. And that is intimacy. Because sex is meant to be the glue of the marriage covenant that bonds male and female together in covenant love. In the most intimate, intimate of, in the most intimate of relationships possible between two human beings. Look at the text with me in verse 24. <clears throat> the author indicates Moses is writing that that what is what's happening between Adam and Eve is the origin story for all human marriage. He writes that is why. A man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Biblical scholars point out that these words about leaving and uniting are covenantal language. They speak of a covenant, of a new loyalty that is being formed between two people. It's an exclusive loyalty, and within this covenant loyalty, a man and a woman join their lives so closely that they become one flesh. Physically, spiritually, procreationally. I'm not even sure that's a word. <laughs> it is now. Um, and we're told that Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife, she's, she's not named yet, Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no Shame. You see, there's no secrets between them. There's full intimacy. There's full knowledge of one another. That's, that's what sex represents and is for. Safety, trust, vulnerability in that covenant love relationship. Now, by the way, let me just pause here because as we talk about this big glorious ideal... I realize that all of us, all of us maybe have experienced this in part. Some of us maybe haven't. And sometimes sexuality has been the source of a lot of pain for us. So we, we just first have to hold the ideal in view. And I promise we'll come back to some of, the, some of what you're thinking and feeling. Okay, so... So this intimacy, this is why marriage is an exclusive bond between two people because without that exclusivity, you can't have that intimacy and that trust and that total vulnerability. So I hope you see the beautiful design for which God created sexuality. Our daughter, Willa, who's four, has been taking violin lessons, which is really, really fun to see. Her, her violin is, is about this long. It's about a quarter of the size of a real violin. And she's still learning just the rudiments of, of how to hold the bow and how to put her fingers over the fretboard. But her teacher, who, who plays for the Vermont Symphony Orchestra sometimes, 
she has her violin in the practice room and she takes it out and plays sometimes. And the room is just filled with this resonant, rich, beautiful music. A violin is a, is a, is a wonder of, of engineering and art. It is designed, every last thing about that instrument is carefully designed for one purpose, to make beautiful music, right? The types of wood that are chosen, the way the wood is shaped, the shape of the body and the sound box, the length of the fretboard, the types of glue and varnish applied, everything about that instrument is carefully designed to create beautiful music. And that is exactly the same um, thing in our sexuality. God created us as embodied male and female beings to come together in a covenant relationship and make this beautiful song. The song of bringing new life into the world. The song of intimacy and joy. The song of covenant love. That's the beautiful design. So what would it look like for us as a church to embrace God's good design for sexuality? One thing that, that I can think of is that we would talk to our kids about it. So parents, we should be talking to our children in age-appropriate ways about the beauty and goodness of sex. Not just the don't do this and don't do that and let's keep it secret and let's not talk about it. What kind of a view of their own sexuality are they going to have if people don't share God's beautiful design with them? And if their parents or other people they trust and love don't teach them about the goodness of our sexuality. So that's part of our job as those raising children. If our kids get the impression that it's something to be ashamed of or to apologize for or to keep secret, then we are not forming them, uh, we're not giving them a good start to appreciate the beauty of the design. I think sometimes as Christians we're afraid of our sexuality because it is such, can be such a strong, overwhelming force and because we see how much hurt it can cause when used improperly. So, so we may ignore it or separate it from our faith. Some Christians have even gone so far as to say, well, we would just all be better off if we were all celibate because then there'd be no sexual sin, then, there, the, then we'd be more spiritual, we could focus on God more. I think the shakers believe that and now there's no more shakers. <laughs> but... Some Christians have taught this, including in the New Testament, when uh, two of the, at least two of the churches to whom Paul was writing had people teaching that married people should not engage in sexual activity, that everyone was better off being celibate. And Paul says, no, that is, that is not, you're not living according to God's design. 1 Timothy 4 and 1 Corinthians 7, if you want to look those up. Um, Julie, Stat Julie Slatterly wrote a book called Rethinking Sexuality. 
why, God's design and why it matters. And she said this. In the midst of raising three boys, I've sometimes lamented that kids reach puberty at 13 but are not mature enough to even consider marriage for another decade. <laughs> While I wish this gap were far shorter, was far shorter, I, I thank God that he, des- excuse me, I thank God that he designed our bodies to be sexually awakened. I believe that sexual desire is God's reminder that we were created for covenant. Our bodies invite us to love. Okay, now we all know that even though sexuality is good and beautiful, there are so many ways that it can go wrong. Um, Like every other part of us, our sexuality is a spiritual battleground. And because it is a very strong part of us, the enemy can exploit that, something that is good, he can exploit it for temptation, for sin, for destruction. There are lots of ways for the violin to be misused and damaged. So here's the second reason why embracing God's wisdom for our sexuality is good. And that's because It saves us from pain and grief. You know the story of what happens in Genesis 3 when the serpent tempts Eve to doubt God's goodness, to disobey his command, and Adam follows, and the two are expelled from the Garden of Eden. Sin hijacks creation. And from that point, very quickly, we see that it affects our sexuality. The rest of Genesis alone is like an R-rated account of how many ways sexuality can go wrong, right? By chapter 4, Adam's great-great-great-grandson Lamech takes two wives, and then you have the start of polygamy, and it does not go well if you read the rest of Genesis. Polygamy is a bad idea, okay? But you also have incest and rape and homosexual behavior and uh, abuse and uh, prostitution and adultery and that's just in Genesis. And again and again we see that those things bring grief and pain and shame to human beings. The consistent witness of scripture is that when we ignore God's design or when we violate God's design for our sexuality, the consequences are painful. If you use a violin for a tennis racket or a canoe paddle, you're going to break the violin, right? So Adam and Eve looked, lived in this pure, sinless sexuality, like naked and no shame uh, sexuality, then the opposite is also true. Impure, sin-infected sexuality leads to shame. It might be shame now because of some natural consequence from um, sexual sin. Or it could be shame later, incurring the judgment of God for sexual sin. I read an article on Friday in the Atlantic magazine um, called Polyamory, the ruling class's latest fad. The writer was responding to this rise, this spike in quote-unquote polyamorous relationships 
which is a, a marriage or a relationship with more than two people, with three or more people, which I guess is kind of a fad right now. I hope it's a fad and not a new normal. Um, it sounds just like we're going back to Genesis, right? Nothing new under the sun. Um, but in this, in this article, the author talked about a book that had just, has just come out um, called More, A Memoir of an Open Marriage. In this book, a woman named Molly chronicles her journey of self-discovery by casting off the constraints of her, of her traditional marriage. But as the, as the writer of the article points out, the book, quote, feels like a 290-page cry for help. She tries to convince herself that her sexual adventures are fulfilling and exciting and bringing greater joy into her life, but she's actually miserable and empty. And I know that's an extreme example, but that's the way all sexual sin works. It promises joy and fulfillment and pleasure. So it whispers in your ear, you know, don't worry about what God said. You can get what you want a different way, and you'll be happy. That's what it promises, but then it leaves you empty and miserable. Now hear me clearly, please, and I, I say this from personal experience. Jesus offers cleansing and freedom from shame caused by sexual sin. Hallelujah. We would all be in trouble if that were not the case. I know many of you can testify to, to God's healing and transforming work within your sexuality. But let that never be an excuse for us who know better to follow a sinful path. So embrace God's wisdom for your sexuality by, if you are married, um, staying faithful to your spouse in thought and in action. If you are single, stay faithful to God by committing your body and your mind to sexual purity. By God's grace. Okay, here's the third reason why we should embrace God's wisdom for our sexuality. And I think I saved the best for last. This reason is because our sexuality points us to Jesus. Sex is more than just two bodies coming together. There's something spiritual that's happening. In God's design, the union of this male and female in covenant love is a song that is meant to be an echo of the gospel, an echo of a, an even more beautiful song, which is the song of God's love for his people the gospel of Jesus Christ. We see a strong hint of this right here in Genesis 2 and 1. So think with me about the creation narrative as a whole. You know, on the first day, God made this and saw that it was good. On the second day, on and on. Now, what you have happening here is pairs of complementary but different things working together. Land, land and sky, sun and moon, uh, heaven and earth, light and darkness. 
And the pinnacle, the high point of that narrative is what? Male and female. Two complementary things coming together in union to make something very good. Through the Old Testament, God inspires prophets again and again to compare uh, God's relationship to his people in the terms of a marriage, of a covenant marital relationship. When God's people worship other gods, he, confu- he um, accuses them of, of being adulterous, unfaithful to him. See, he, he wants their exclusive, total, intimate love. Um, and, and only the analogy of marriage will, will suffice to show his love for his people and their love for him. Now, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul um, connects the dots for us to Jesus. In Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 5, he gives instructions to different members of the household, including husbands and wives. Many of you know this passage. He quotes this famous passage from Genesis 2. For this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife and the two will become one flesh. He quotes that. Then he continues, this is a profound mystery, but I am talking about Christ and the church. How can he be talking about men and women and marriage and then then say in an instant, but I'm talking about Christ and the church? That's what I'm really talking about here. Because he understands that in the same way A husband and a wife give themselves to one another completely and fully and totally and are united in marriage, one flesh. That is the way Jesus gave himself completely for us. He held nothing back. He gave himself up unto death to redeem his unfaithful bride and to to bring us back to him. That's in that way, the song of our sexuality is an echo of the gospel of Jesus Christ. It points us to Jesus. It's not just, uh, you know, for the purpose of a husband and wife coming together, as important as that is. It's meant to be a signpost to something bigger, an echo of a more beautiful song. It's not an end in itself, even though we live in a culture that worships sex as a god and says sex is the pinnacle of human existence and if you, don't, if you can't have sex, then you're a miserable human being, right? But we know that it's an echo of a bigger, more beautiful thing. It's an echo of the gospel. So if this is true, if our sexuality is meant to point us and others to Christ, what should we do about that? Well, if you are married, your marriage can be a song that helps people hear the gospel. Guard and cultivate your intimacy, your unity, your covenant love, partially through the gift of your sexuality that God has given you. Rejoice in that. 
And may our church support marriages to flourish and to be as imperfect as we all are, to be echoes of the gospel. But maybe you're thinking, okay, Pastor Tyler, we live in the real world, and my violin is broken, or it's on the top shelf and I can't reach it, or a few of the strings are missing. You know, some of you are in situations in life where this where you can't be sexually active. Maybe you're young and single and struggling with sexual desires. Or maybe you are divorced. Or maybe you're widowed. Or maybe you are in a marriage in which one of you has an ailment that prevents or limits intimacy. What hope is there for you? Can you still participate in this? And here's what I would say to that. First, I don't want to downplay the struggle. It's, it's even harder when we are in this culture that's sex-saturated and sex-crazed. It can be really hard to believe that God's way is best and to commit your life to it. But if you follow Jesus, he will help you. To quote my friend Brad Parker, who's also a pastor, Jesus does lead along hard paths sometimes, but those are also good paths. But here's the other thing you need to know. Like I said before, sex is a good thing, but it's not the ultimate thing. It's not the most important thing in life. Jesus is the most important thing. And so, no matter who you are, your life can still be an instrument placed in the hands of the master who can make beautiful music with it. In fact, sometimes single people can do this in ways that married people can't. And I'm going to devote a whole sermon to that in one of the upcoming messages. The gift of singleness. What everyone needs to hear today to bring this home is that embracing God's wisdom for our sexuality is always best. The path of following Jesus is always the path of maximum joy and blessing. And every single person, married or single, gay or straight, young or old, will struggle to submit their sexuality to Christ, but it is worth it. He is worth it. And as we do, our lives will make beautiful music to his glory.